1: Twelve twenty. So call in, we'll chat, and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network.
2: Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Don't be shy. Pick up the phone. Give me a call, 800-516-1220. Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. And basically all topics are good to run by, whether it be love. Love costs money, right? Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. Whether it be retirement, how much is enough are you going to get there? Will it last? That's one of the big topics of the week. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton. Let's talk a little bit about income in retirement. Ms. Burton, how are you?
3: Excellent. How are you?
2: I'm well. Thanks for asking. Um, Let's discuss a little bit about Social Security, I think. Um, Pretty popular topic, whether it's how much you make, how much you put in, how much you get out, your spouse, your spouse after your death, doing it at 62, doing it at 70. Pretty popular topic across the board. How should we look at Social Security?
3: Well, in the reason why it's, it is such a popular topic, because these planning strategies have been around for a long, long time, but a couple of things have happened. First of all, the industry has changed into more of a fee-based, hopefully fiduciary-based environment where you know the, the advisor is supposed to be not selling product and they're supposed to be doing the right thing by the client as a fiduciary. So in the past, the reason why it wasn't a popular topic The way that advisors would work, especially the commission-based ones, is they'd say, oh, you know, they want to get every single dollar they can invested in whatever annuity or loaded fund, and they don't want the people to draw on it, so they'd have them take Social Security right away and say, oh, look at how great this annuity or this bond fund is or whatever. Well, the average bond fund is paying 3% or less right now if you have a lower-duration bond fund. And if you do Social Security the right way, if you wait from your full retirement age, which is 66 for most people, to age 70, it's about an 8% rate of return on your money, which we talk about all the time. And then there's okay. ways that one spouse can file a restricted application and draw on their other spouse's benefits until they turn 70. So there's ways to pull you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars extra out of Social Security if you live a long time. People are living much longer than they used to. Um, people used to retire at 65 and plan on passing away you know, mid-80s. Now you have to make sure you're age 100. And even if you're not healthy, you're leaving your check. If your check is bigger, you're leaving that to your spouse. They're going to keep the bigger check when you pass away. So it's something that is a, a really popular topic right now. It's something that you need to learn how to maximize. I had a question yesterday on the afternoon show about how does taking Social Security affect your asset allocation? It, the only way that it affects your asset allocation, Rob, is it affects how much safe money you need to have on the sidelines. What okay. I mean by that is if you are going to retire at, say, 65 but not take Social Security until 70, your safe money target, which is three years' worth of your portfolio draws, your safe money target is going to be bigger for the first four years. And so you really have to do detailed cash flow analysis and say how much are you going to draw from your portfolio and what I mean by that is you have your, all of your expenses, including taxes and health insurance, minus your automatic income sources like Social Security and pensions and possibly some rental income, things like that. And so if you're delaying Social Security, your portfolio draws are going to be bigger that first four years until you're 70. And uh, and then it can change. So it affects your asset allocation only by the amount of safe money that you have to have in place when you get towards retirement and then once you turn on the tap for Social Security. And sometimes that's, you know, several years apart between you and your spouse. And uh, like I said before, money that should – is it stock market money? That's five-plus-year money. It's not one, two, three-year money. So you really have to have that safe money to get you through the bad markets.
2: Question for you, and I don't know if you see this because I see it maybe because I do a little bit more front-side media and you do a little bit more front-side financial planning. Um, I see people who turn 60 and basically go, I want Social Security now. Like, it's, it's, kind of like a, it's kind of like a gift. It's kind of like a, uh, I don't have to work as much, you know, as soon as they get to 62-ish. But I, I see it as a gift mentality or, you know, hey, this is free, it's kind of a free money. Do you see that on your end or do you see people are a little more serious because you're dealing with the planning aspect?
3: I see it a lot, especially when I run into couples where one person has a health issue because right. that affects kind of the retirement mentality of both of them. They think, okay, so-and-so is not going to be around very long, so we better get what we can right now. And, again, that's often one of the biggest mistakes because the typical situation is it's the male that has the bad health, but the male had the higher earnings, the male has the higher check. That's just the way that you know things have worked. So it's almost more important that the person that is very ill wait until 70 to get their Social Security, have that bigger check, because that bigger check is going to go to the spouse. About the only time where you take it at 62, in my opinion, um, is if you're single and you know you're not going to get married, and you know you're not going to live past you know 80 years old, because there is a crossover point, and from for most people it's between 80, 84, where it's as long as you live past age 84, it pays to have you wait until you're 70, because you're not taking Social Security for four years worth of payments, and if you turn it on later, you get a much higher payment, but there's a break-even analysis that you have to do, so. Yeah, if you're, you know, 62 years old and you're not very healthy, you're single, go ahead and take that check early. I get it. That's probably the right thing to do.
2: Okay. So let's keep talking a little bit more about Social Security um, as a strategy. We are doing an event this Thursday night at the Toll House Hotel, and part of the event is tied towards income and retirement. That's the big overall Arching theme of it: building a retirement portfolio that lasts in Las Gatos, at the Toll House Hotel Thursday from 6:30 to 9. You're the key speaker, essentially, uh, trying to reduce risk with diversification, rebalancing a portfolio. Uh, ETFs the right way to use them as paying stocks, taxable accounts, non-taxable accounts. A lot of content's hit, but one of the things I think that you know people stumble over, Mr. Burton, is proper retirement allocation. Uh, what do we need to know about allocation?
3: Well, the the one thing that's going to be the correct calculation for everybody is the amount of cash that you have on hand. Um, really? You know, which I go over in detail how to figure that out. That's your gross income, and, and that's the hardest part is figuring out what your expenses are, especially the first five years of retirement when you have all the home repairs, the honey-do list, the travel, and things like that. So, it's your gross expenses three times that number. Um, minus your automatic income sources like Social Security and pension. So the the cash amount is the minimum is that three years' worth of portfolio draws. That's the same for everybody. What What's different from each individual or each couple is how you allocate the rest of the money, and that's based on your risk tolerance. And, you know, sometimes people do have such a low risk tolerance, they actually will not have a successful retirement. So it's an education process in terms of, Here's why you need equities in your plan. Um, if you haven't had, been able to you know, take the risk before, here's why you should take some risk with some of the money because this is the only way we can beat inflation and have decent returns, especially in the next five, ten years when bond rates are at historical lows. Um, so the, the, the risk part is pretty easy um, just to, to gauge that and figure out where your risk tolerance is versus where you should be. And there's a what is your risk number link on our website, newfocusfinancial.com, that you can kind of take to see how a short version of a, of a risk exam works, and then we can even do a comparison of a portfolio. The harder part, Rob, is, is the asset location, right? So once you determine how much is in large cap, small cap, mid cap, international emerging markets, bonds, global bond funds, unconstrained bonds, things like that, then you've got to figure out which accounts they go in
2: much. It's CFP Chad Burton. You can learn more about all of this, building a retirement portfolio that lasts, Toll House Hotel. Toll House Hotel, Thursday, 639. Sign up for the event at robblack.com. That's robblack.com.
1: You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220
2: KDOW. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show. Anything that you want to talk about, we can talk about. Money, investing, and more. New report out says that Donald Trump is overstating his wealth by over $7 billion. He says it's worth $10 billion. Uh, A new report says it's more like $2.9 billion. There's a little bit of a, a wiggle room, huh? You're only $7 billion off. Let's bring in Michelle Lerman, state planning attorney with Lerman Law. You can find her at LermanLaw.com. She, too, will be part of the event Thursday night Toll House Hotel built in retirement portfolio that lasts. Um, you can sign up for the event at robblack.com. How are you, Michelle?
0: I'm great, Rob. Thanks. Um, let's, talk, let's talk
2: a little bit about estate planning. Tell me what an estate planning attorney does.
0: We plan in the event that someone is incapacitated or they should die. And as I was meeting with my clients yesterday who were in their 90s doing their first estate plan, it reminded me that estate, plannings work, estate planning attorneys work with young people, um, not necessarily um, people who are about to die. So we plan once you own a home or you have children, an estate planning attorney protects your assets and protects your children.
2: Okay, now there was recently a story I want to ask you quickly about before we get into your content. Bobby Christina. Um, It looks like an estate planning mess. The daughter of Whitney Houston passes away, worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Obviously, Bobby Brown's on the sidelines, but also Whitney Houston's sister is on the sidelines, who was set up in the original trust, I believe. Um, How often do you see crazy estate plans like that, where there's just people on the sidelines waiting to get to said inheritance
0: you know we see it a lot and i and i volunteer for the judges on a uh, settlement panel to try and settle matters and so i not only see what what i you know what comes in the door into my office but i see what goes on in the courthouse and Battles, any sort, any time you're going to court, it's very difficult and very emotional. But when you're going to court and it's family members and people are coming out of the woodwork and what you think was going to happen, what you talked about, what, you know, what life presented during life and then someone passes away, it's just unbelievable the surprises that come up. So unfortunately, uh, uh, we we see it. I could go on and on with stories. <laughs> That's what my book is about: lots of lots of stories about what happens.
2: Let's talk and change gears ever so slightly. What do married couples need to know after you know the recent American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012?
0: that was a biggie the american taxpayer relief act of 2012 it's amazing it's 2012 now it's 2015 but in our office we're still seeing so many married couples have not relooked at their plan and the big the the biggest issue there is something called portability and sometimes people get scared away from estate planning because they you know lawyers talk in these big fancy terms but just to try and simplify it it just means that if one spouse were to die by filing a tax return you could elect something called portability and a married couple could actually now leave over ten million dollars free of estate tax and the reason that's so critical is that in prior years, we used to constantly prepare. It was just pretty routine that we would prepare a certain kind of trust in order to minimize estate state tax. Now that certain kind of trust called a bypass trust. That certain kind of trust is no longer needed with portability, and in certain circumstances, certain circumstances we are still doing that traditional bypass trust. So it's very, very individual. But the problem is that if you don't prepare it properly, that traditional bypass trust can actually harm. And for the vast majority of married couples, they just, they just don't need it. So reviewing it because now you can leave over $10 million free of estate tax is, is what's really critical.
2: What did the change – let's talk a little bit about living trust for married couples. What do we need to know?
0: Well – there are many different kinds of married trust for living couples. So uh, you often ask me, you're so good at this, um, Rob, to say, well, explain like from the beginning, like what, what is a living trust? And it's basically an instruction manual. What do I want to happen if I should pass away or if I'm incapacitated? And putting property like oh, home, that's why I say when most people buy a home, that's the first sign that they need to think about a living trust. A living trust, as opposed to a will, is going to avoid going to court probate, and probate in court when someone passes away is expensive and time-consuming, and it can generally be avoided by putting real property, like a home, into a living trust. But having said that, as long as you fund the trust with the property, you're going to avoid probate for that property but the problem is that all living trusts aren't alike so what a married couple needs to think about is if my spouse passed away what do I want my living trust to say do I want everything to come to me just as simple as possible we call it an I call it in my office an all to spouse plan everything just goes to the spouse simple as possible or do I need to create these ongoing trusts either for protection from creditors protection I don't want my spouse remarrying what if my spouse marries a sexy sue as I say or the Don Juan so you need to think about what you want your plan to say what are what are your particular goals is it simplicity is it protection from a sexy sue and understanding that your decision on that is going to impact your life in a huge way taxes and non-tax issues
2: Michelle, we've got a little less than a minute she will be speaking at building a portfolio retirement portfolio that last, We'll be talking estate planning issues. You can find her at the Toll House Hotel Thursday night with me and Chad from 630 to 9. People can sign up for this event at robblack.com. Michelle, we're running out of time. Bypass trust. What is it? Why do we need it? Or do we need it?
0: Your bypass trust is an irrevocable trust. That means it cannot be revoked without jumping through some hoops when one spouse dies. Do you need it? Depends on your circumstance, and that's why you need a qualified estate planning attorney to walk you through it.
2: You've helped me with an estate plan. I wildly appreciate it. You help our audience on a regular basis. Thanks for joining us. It's Michelle Lerman. You can find her at lermanlaw.com. That's lermanlaw.com. She's got a book that explains everything that you need to know about estate planning. You can find it at her site. Again, Thursday night building retirement portfolio, that last whole house hotel. It's in Los Gatos, California, the cat. Uh, It's going to be 6.30 to 9. Get there early because traffic around that area tends to get a little snarled at that time of evening. You don't want to run out of money in retirement. CFP Chad Burton is going to help you build a retirement portfolio that lasts. That's really key and critical. Again, if you're 65 years old and 400 pounds, you may not need a retirement (laughs) portfolio that lasts. You may need just a couple years. But if you plan to take care of the healthcare and the biotechnology out there and all the crazy things happening in the healthcare industry to extend our lives, you'll want a portfolio that lasts, reducing risk with diversification, rebalancing a portfolio in retirement, retirement accounts versus taxable accounts, much, much more current market conditions. You can sign up for the event at robblack.com. It's robblack.com.
1: Rob Black online at RobBlack.com. Now, back to Rob Black and your
2: money on
1: AM 1220
2: KDOW. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Joining me now, Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Strategist with Briefing.com. I start every day reading his page one column. Um, It's the best way to get a pulse on the markets. How are you, Mr. O'Hare?
4: Hi, Rob. I'm doing
3: well. Thank
2: you. Now, we just played the song, Renegades, uh, or ex-Renegades. Not much renegade action going about in your lifestyle, is there?
5: <laughs> um, yeah, you know me too well. That's, that's about right.
2: <laughs> I think uh, a lot of people don't understand. Strategists, um, they're pretty straight-laced guys, and they they try to see things in a very dry, light
5: yeah, you know, I I suppose I do try to put a little bit of color into uh into my writing style if you will, uh, to sure. uh to make things a little more interesting. Uh you know, I've been at this for 18 years and uh from my perspective, writing in, you know, black and white terms all the time gets a little drab. So, um it's nice to uh introduce some metaphors and some uh some flair if you will to get the point across uh, about the market's uh, behavior, but um yeah, you know, what I'm seeing right now is kind of, you know, what we've been seeing all year long, frankly. It's just a market that just can't get things figured out, and so it's, you know, chopping around within a, in a within a trading range, and it's finding plenty to worry about and plenty to feel good about. And then its pivot point seems to be this uh, Federal Reserve and what it's going to do with interest rates.
2: Let's get to that in one second. Let's stick with earnings. You mentioned in your first sentence today that better-than-expected second quarter Results from Merck, Pfizer, Ford, and UPS. What made them better than expected? Revenue growth, earnings expectations. Uh, was it quality? Was it new product? What did yeah. you like about these four?
5: Sure. Well, it, it definitely was not uh, revenue growth. Um, not one of those companies actually reported a year-over-year increase in revenue, um, and a lot of that, frankly, had to do with the you know the impact of the stronger dollar. Um, so what? When I say that they were better than expected, it was just simply the bottom line, the earnings per share number came in ahead of street expectations. Um so uh, you know, so it, it, they got that label. But uh the the point I had made uh in that piece too was that the futures were up, you know, strongly pre market, um, uh, but it really didn't have anything to do with those reports because all of the gains in the futures had occurred prior to those reports were you know, being released. Um they didn't they didn't hurt the tone by any means but they didn't they weren't the difference in terms of why the market was trading or expected to trade higher at the open
2: so how is earnings season gone in your opinion is it not a lot yeah, of revenue growth okay earnings
5: yeah well there's no revenue growth uh rob unfortunately you know oh. we're looking at revenues right now uh, projected to be down close to 4% year over year now granted a, a significant uh Driver of that decline is is the you know the oil price decline and and what uh, the energy companies are reporting in terms of their revenue. I mean you know uh, for example BP reported this morning and you know the revenues were down I think 36 percent year over year. So you're seeing some big declines in the energy sector. Take that number down. Um, as far as the earnings per share figures, like always, they're coming in better than the marked down expectations. Um, I think we were looking at around down 4.5% or so when the earnings reporting period uh, started. And as of the end of last week, uh, we were tracking uh, aggregate earnings to be down about 2%. So, you know, they get billed as being better than than expected. But, you know, frankly, they're not good. I mean, you're still looking at, you know, an earnings decline. And, you know, other critics might be quick to say, yeah, but if you take out the energy sector, you're looking at earnings up close to 6% year over year. I get it, but, you know, in the end, it all counts, you know, in terms of factoring for the market's valuation. You can always find a sector that you want to exclude to make the numbers look better or, or uh, and, you know, and we saw that during the financial crisis when the financial sector was often excluded from the reporting period. So we try to get away. We try to distance ourselves from those types of exclusions, and we do look at the whole pie, and right now it's not looking too great.
2: I disagree with you. Pie always looks great. <laughs> One of my favorite... F- one of my favorite lines is sometimes you take a, a pie in the face and sometimes you're hip deep in pie. I love <laughs> pie. But you're right. You're right. Um, let's talk a little bit about China. Yep. Uh, that was a, a pretty big kind of crazy couple days there. And I got a couple emails and did some television spots on it of why do we care about China? What, what's your opinion?
5: Well, you know, that th- the point is made that there's not a lot of household wealth tied up in the Chinese stock market. What I've read and seen is that there's roughly about ten percent of Chinese household wealth. so the the point being is that when you get these collapse in stock prices in the Chinese stock market it it shouldn't have a significant economic impact on uh, the world's you know second largest economy, right? So um, you know I do take some exception to that viewpoint, however, because I think that uh, there's an underappreciation, really, for the impact on uh, the consumer psyche in China. I mean, people are going to be tuned into what they see going on in this volatile stock market, and while it might not hit them directly, their mindset will be that you know their neighbor or their customer, you know, or what have you might uh, might be you know, reticent to spend freely because of what's going on in that stock market and I think that that will contribute to the to the slowdown that is unfolding in China and I think you know we do need to, to to pay close attention to what's going on over there because uh you know if you get a snowball effect in terms of consumer psychology not just investor psychology um then there will be some real economic impact that filters uh you know throughout the globe and um and right now, with what we're seeing, obviously in the weakness in the commodity space, there's um, a lot of noise behind that. You know, is it just a supply issue? Is it because the dollar's stronger? You know, you know what is it exactly? Is it because China's slowing down? I think all of the above apply there, but uh, that is certainly uh, you know a development that should not be dismissed when you get this uh, continued price weakness in what are supposed to be the building blocks. Uh, for for a strong economy, and you're just not seeing that right now.
2: So that brings us to our next point. Uh, The Federal Reserve, obviously they have a meeting this week. No one is expecting to raise interest rates immediately. But September seems to be for real and on the table. Uh, How are you seeing the Fed take a look at the recent action, like in China and European markets, as well as the U.S., kind of not doing a lot?
5: Yeah, you know, the, with the Federal Reserve, you know, time and time again, they've stated that they're data dependent. Um, uh, and right now that revolves around their, their – their, well, it always revolves around their dual mandate, which is maximum employment and price stability. And, um, you know, the Fed doesn't need to see inflation uh, measured by the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, get price indexed get to two percent before they raise rates. They've said they just simply need to be reasonably confident it's moving toward that objective. And frankly what you know we've seen unfold uh in China and with commodities and the dollar strengthening, I mean, those are not inflationary trends. I mean those are disinflationary trends. So I can't imagine that the Fed has to is sitting in its meeting right now thinking that it can, you know, really be serious when it says that it's feeling reasonably confident that inflation is going to be moving toward its two percent objective anytime soon um, you know they are desperate to raise interest rates and i think that you know if something happens in september where they actually raise rates it's simply going to be because you know i think uh... uh... there'll be some credibility issues involved there because uh... certainly what we're seeing so far and some of the trends we're seeing unfolding don't support that move in our estimation but um but the you know the fed has said that you know it's put out the parameters there as to why they would raise interest rates i for one wouldn't believe it based on what i see right now um, i wouldn't find it a very credible move but they are desperate to raise rates and they may very well do that um, finding any reason to raise rates that sounds pretty good
2: i recently spent a little time on the other coast the east coast and uh i realized uh the bay Area is very very prosperous what's your take Mr. O'Hare, on the whole prosperity in America in the middle class and lower income levels. Are they getting left behind? Are we doing enough? Um, as a as stock market participant, it's been pretty good to me. It's, I'm assuming it's been pretty good to you. What's your opinion on prosperity in America?
5: Sure. Well, I'll have to put the caveat here. I have to be careful. Um, we're a subscription-based service at Briefing.com, right? So we we endeavor okay. not to take political views. And um, I'm not. A, yeah. You know. And so this is it's a political hot-button issue, obviously. Um, but you know, I I approach things from you know I'm a believer in capitalism. I'm a believer in the fact that you know if you've put forth the effort to, you know, become successful and you are successful and, you know, whatever price that comes at, you, you know, it's it's what you've earned and um and and I do think though that, you know, our country needs to provide those opportunities, they're going to allow people the frankly the opportunity to try to become successful uh from the lower class to the middle class right up to the uh, you know, to the upper classes. Um so um, there's definitely an issue here that, that needs to be addressed. Um, but, um, you know, I, I personally, um, I feel that uh, if you have put in the effort to make whatever amount of money you make, um, you are entitled to that, uh, and you should not necessarily be forced into redistribution of that income, um, you know, for, well, I think for more political reasons than not.
2: I think if I was a smarter man, maybe what I was trying to get at is is – The way you look at the economy and the way you look at the stock market, has it changed with obviously the prosperity of the United States, but we don't need to get into that this time. I want to say thank you so much. It's Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Strategist with Briefing.com. I start every morning reading his words, whether it's about Merck, Pfizer, Ford, UPS, whether it's about Janet Yellen, whether it's about what's going on in Greece or China very insightful and it's very calming. You can find more about him at Reefy.com, more about me at RobBlack.com. That's RobBlack.com.
1: The proof never been free. You're, li- you're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KBOW and I Radio Station.
2: I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Eight hundred five one six twelve twenty 516 1220 to get your calls on the air. Guest heavy morning. Um, hopefully that works for you. Hopefully we've gotten some insights out there. One of the more interesting stories I've seen recently is how much is a human egg worth? I have a friend who tried for 15 years to get pregnant and did the whole spinning and the whole implant and nothing ever worked. Uh, they didn't know it was him. They didn't know it was her. They're both pretty good numbers and they didn't ever they have a baby and they tried and they tried and they tried and ultimately they became uh, part of the court system so that if You know a baby needed an emergency place to stay they could you know foster that baby or foster that child and that opens the door for adoption if someone ever gives up a baby for adoption in the fostering kind of world uh they know that you're qualified parents they got their baby Uh, but how much is an egg worth so it's kind of crazy The question is at the heart of a federal lawsuit right now brought by two women who provided eggs to couples struggling with infertility. The women claim the price guidelines adopted by fertility clinics nationwide have artificially suppressed the amount they can get for their eggs, which is in violation of antitrust laws. The industry groups behind the price guidelines discourage payments above $10,000 per egg per donation cycle, saying that caps are needed to prevent coercion or exploitation of the egg donation process. Um... It's illegal price fixing. Um, pretty interesting. Let's go to a call, Emilio.
4: Rob, how's it going? Good. I got a call and a a phantom bond holding in your account. And the, well, the reason I call it phantom is because it don't exist. I have a pension coming in that's adjusted to inflation. I have sure. a VA claim that comes in adjusted to inflation, which is tax-free on both sides, roughly okay. 60000 a year. Can I just say that's my bond holding?
2: You could say whatever you want. Yeah. Um it's, it's certainly the conservative income side of your retirement portfolio. Uh, do you have other assets for retirement?
4: Oh, yeah. I got about uh, 600000 in, in stocks. Okay. Diversified.
2: Have you put together a budget for retirement?
4: Uh, not you really. Sp- I got a, sp- a large cash holding. I never thought having a lot of money could be a problem. <laughs> now that I got all this money, I'm trying to. I got to put some of it to work to, you know, fight inflation to some
2: degree. Absolutely. So I so gotta especially if you have longevity in your life.
4: Cash, so what do I do? How much cash you have? A million. I got 600000 in the stock market already, so yeah. I don't want to go too heavy in the stock market because that $1 million was profits made in the dot-com run from '85 to okay. 2000 I don't want to put that back in the game again because it's already, you know, pigs get slaughtered.
2: I think that's a ridiculous statement. I think having a strategy involved in the market would be a very wise thing for you to have at this point in time. There's some good, solid companies out there that are trading for low valuations that won't get you, quote-unquote, slaughtered. And using phrases like that, it's kind of inane um, because it's not a market of, like, razor blades. It's not going to cut you. It's not going to bleed you out. Uh certainly I wouldn't put it in the S and P five hundred at all time highs, unless you're gonna scale it into that position. But um I think you just need a strategy and thanks for the call and that's a great transition for me talking about here's a guy with one million dollars cash for the last fifteen years, according to him, you know, ninety five to two thousand, the quote unquote first internet dot com bubble. Um and what has the market done since then? Hit record highs. It hit record highs earlier, you know, last month. Um, and yet he's afraid. So he could have had a lot more than a million dollars. I understand his fear. But that's something people have to deal with and move forward and come up and start thinking. He didn't sound like a spring chicken. He didn't sound like he was 40 or 50. He sounded like he was pushing 60 at least. So and he needs to learn how to build a retirement portfolio. Great chance for him to come to the Toll House Hotel in Los Gatos Thursday night from 6.30 to 9. Uh, he doesn't want to run out of money, but he also doesn't want to keep his money in cash. Um, like he said, he's got a good problem, but it is a problem. He's got $600,000 in stocks. He's got a nice pension, very nice pension. Um, it's ultimately paying him roughly $60,000 a year. That's an asset that's probably worth about one and a half million dollars in stock market and you know a million and a half will pay you sixty to eighty thousand dollars roughly till the day you die um so he's got that plus he's got a million cash plus he's got six hundred thousand in the market so you know he, he to me he's got assets and again like he said can he consider his pension bonds and technically no but yeah for all intent purposes he can consider it a income portfolio and like i said that's probably worth about a million and a half. So he's probably worth about $3 million. He should be able to, in retirement, you know, pay himself um, 120000 plus a year, easily, till the day he dies. But not if he keeps in cash. And again, especially if he has longevity, um, he should probably only have about three years of income in cash. Income, i.e., the draw that he needs in retirement. So, big event coming up at the Toll House Hotel. Great event for him, 6:30 to 9. I'm going to explain how to build a retirement portfolio that'll last decades. Look at reducing risk strategies to help you save in low interest rate environments, minimizing taxes in retirement, and more. Reducing risk with diversification, bond alternatives, and retirement products. Uh, they differ in low interest rate environments and rising interest rate environments. You need to have a strategy. I'm Rob Black. You can find me online at robblack.com. The event is Thursday night at the Toll House Hotel in Los Gatos. Sign up at robblack.com.
1: Every day is a compromise.
3: If this is low, I'm looking for